briefing on the latest crime statistics for 2013-2014 period. My name is Gareth Hume. I head up the Governance, Crime and Justice Division at the Institute for Security Studies. Um, for those that are not aware, the Institute for Security Studies is a pan-African independent research and policy advice organization. We also do capacity building and technical assistance. We have offices in Kenya, in Ethiopia and in Senegal and our head office is here in Pretoria. Um, I want to just firstly thank our sponsors for the work we do on the crime statistics, including the Hans Seidel Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the government of Finland. Uh, as you all know, every year, once a year in September, uh, as the annual reports are about to be presented to Parliament, the Minister of Police and the National Commission of Police present the crime statistics for the previous financial year. So the information that they'll present, and now we hear it's on Friday morning, will be for the period uh, 31st of March 2018. And 13, and will end for uh, on sorry on the, the 1st of April 2013 to the 31st of March 2014. So there are six months out of date. So the information that is presented is not about what is happening now in South Africa. It's about what happened um, at the end of 31st of March earlier this year. The purpose of this briefing is really to uh, just remind ourselves of what the crime statistics were doing last year, but also just to get people ready for them to understand what they mean and what they say. So I'll speak for about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll have questions and answers discussion. Um, if there are questions you want to know about the crime stats, how they're collected, what they mean, what they don't represent, um, I'll be happy to answer those questions. So the idea really is to, to be a bit of a primer um, and to assist especially media and others who are interested in crime statistics to make sense of them when they eventually come out. So what I'll be covering today really is what did the last, last year crime statistics tell us? What can we expect from the statistics that will be released on Friday? Will more police resources help reduce crime? And what do we think needs to be done if not? So, last year, we saw some new and important shifts in the crime stats. Most importantly, uh, almost most of the serious violent crime categories showed some kind of increase. For us, the most important one is the murder, uh, murder category because that is probably our most reliable crime statistic. There's a very high reporting rate because the police, there's a dead body, there are murders, so it's very reliable and it's probably the most reliable. Um, what was of concern to us last year was that the increase in murder, there was about 650 additional murders than the previous year before, uh, show it was only the third time in the last 20 years that we've seen an increase. So murder has actually come down quite substantially and consistently since 1994. Uh, it's now well below half that. So in 1994, we recorded a murder rate of 66.9 murders per 100,000 people, and it has now dropped to about 31 murders per 100,000 people. So that's a good reduction. Um, but that it increased is a warning sign for us, and something that needs to be looked at, because murder, most murders, and I'll get into that, are committed by people who know each other, but there are other kinds of crimes that can lead to increases in murders. So I'll speak about that in a second. But that was certainly for us was a warning flag. Secondly, that there's only second time in the last decade that we saw an increase in total aggravated robbery, of which most are street robberies. That means that more people last year were being attacked on their way from and to work while shopping out in public on the streets by armed men largely with weapons uh, than before. And that kind of crime is a feeder into other kinds of crimes such as house robberies and business robberies and hijackings, which ultimately are largely syndicated and organized um, and can then lead to other kinds of problems we're having. So it's not good to see an increase in those crimes because typically people who commit street robberies progress into attacking people in their homes and in their businesses. And of course, we saw then armed attacks on homes, businesses, and vehicles continuing to increase. We were a bit disappointed in the SAP's management response. The Commissioner Ria Piecha said the statistics tell the story of hope and confidence because she was pointing that crime was much higher in 2002 and 2003, which no one disputed. But when you're looking at crime year on year and you need to make strategic and policy decisions that address safety in the country, it's not good enough to say, well, things are worse 10 years ago. You look at the existing shifts and current trends in order to, to, to react to that. Um, in addition to that, we saw that the police released incorrect crime ratios. They were incorrectly calculated which exaggerated the decreases and underplayed the increases in terms of the ratios of crime changing, uh, which gave people a false sense of what was going up and by how much and what was going down. And it was more exaggerated at the provincial level. So the, mo the, the province that had the most out 
uh, incorrect statistics in terms of ratios, for example, was the Western Cape. Um, the police stats said that murder had only gone up by half a percent in the Western Cape, and it got up by 10 percent. And certain crimes have actually gone up, and the police are telling us they're going down. So that undermined the credibility of the statistics and of the stats themselves. And we are the first to acknowledge that we have many dedicated, honest, hard-working men and women in the South African Police Service that need all our assistance. And you cannot have the senior management to do that kind of thing. It undermines the, the trust in the police and the credibility of the information they release. And in addition, there was no clear strategies to deal with this. So we weren't told, listen, there's been a big change. We've seen murder going up. We've seen pe more people being attacked in the streets, more people being attacked in their homes, and this is what we're going to do to deal with it. That was not how the statistics were presented. We were told everything is looking great, and there's no need to do anything different. Anyway, so this is what crime looks like over the last 20, uh, 20 years in South Africa. So you can see um, that it did peak in 2002, 2003, followed by a few years of quite big decreases, about a 20% decrease. The rate of decrease then slowed down. Um, and then for the last, since about 2008-9, sort of the last four or five years, total crime has actually been stabilizing and has actually slightly increased now. Okay, so total crime rates have really been made quite static in terms of the last four or five years. Um, that's driven largely by increases in property crime. You can see the, uh, the green section it represents the total amount of property crime, which is about two-thirds of our crime. That orange section is the robbery rates, and the bottom section is murder. It's assault, murder, and rape, pretty much, interpersonal violent crime. Um, and you can see these, these types of crimes are now leveling off. They're not going down anymore. Okay. Um, that is a list of the key and serious crimes that increased last year. The red ones are violent. So we saw big in increases in public violence, 54% increase, almost 55% increase. Truck hijacking, four, almost a 15% increase. Kidnapping went up, attempted murder went up, robberies in residential premises went up. Car hijacking, robbery with aggravated circumstances, murder, sexual crimes, robbery at non-residential premises and common robbery. And then we see also increases in burglary of businesses and of households also going up at that time, and theft out of motor vehicles. So last year's crime picture wasn't good. It was not good news, unfortunately. These are the crimes that went down. You can see only three categories are, are violent in nature. Um, these are big categories. You see assault, GVH going down, sort of intent to do grievous body harm. Uh, big reductions there. Uh, uh, six, almost 6,700 fewer cases. And common assault, 8,700 cases. These are the least reliable crime statistics along with rape. Um, and some of the commercial crime indicators, such as fraud. Um, because people don't necessarily go to the police if they're being assaulted, if they don't think the police are going to do anything about it. But it is interesting that they, they're big reductions. So when you look at the total contact crime, the police call it, they look at total violent crime, these big drops in those two categories made total violent crime drop and obscured all increases in the armed robberies and other attacks that we're talking about. So it's important to understand that the crime categories that are the most serious and the most reliable went up last year. And then all theft, you can see that uh, so between common assault and assault GVH, for some reason there was a massive drop of almost 15,000 cases. So whereas peop more people were burglaring homes and businesses, for some reason other theft dropped by a huge 15,000 cases, um, which also obscured or tended to bring the total crime rates down lower than they would have otherwise been. Okay, so this is the murder rate I was telling you about. And you can see the, big, the increase there. Um, just for your interest, if you want to know if Gauteng is uh, the most dangerous province to live in, you very, uh, will be murdered in, you'd like, you're very happy to know that it's not. The average murder rate in Gauteng of 24 murders per 100,000 people is lower than the national average of 31.1 murders per 100,000 people. And the Eastern Cape, followed by the Western Cape, are the provinces you're most likely to be murdered in, in terms of the numbers of murders per population living there. The least likely is Mpopo. Okay, the reason why it's important to look at ratios is because it gives you the risk factor. When you look at pure numbers, where you have large population groups, there will obviously be more people being murdered, so that's where the higher numbers will be. But if you look at the risk of being murdered, the chance of being murdered compared to the numbers of people living in a place, the picture looks very different. So this is last year a geographical spread of what the murder uh, precinct picture looked like. And you can see there in the Eastern Cape, it's quite high, a lot of large numbers as well in the Kauteng populated areas down the Western Cape. But if you want to know where the most, you're most at risk of being murdered, then you look at the ratios and the picture changes completely. 
And that is why you'll see high, uh, Eastern Cape, Western Cape. The rural areas are more dangerous in terms of being murdered than the urban areas in South Africa. Okay, um, what you know about murder in South Africa is that most of the perpetrators are known to the victims. Uh, 20% of the perpetrators are family members, and up to 80% in total know the, the person by sight. Uh, 60% are often friends or neighbours. Only 20% are completely unknown. And that is because the nature of murder in South Africa is driven by socio-economic conditions. In very particular localities, people often get drunk, get into an argument, start assaulting each other, and somebody gets killed. That's what drives the bulk of our murders. Um, you can see there that uh, on the motives, um, this part chart here, that only... Criminal actions such as robberies only contribute to about 16% of our murders. So you're more likely to kill somebody by killed by somebody you know than by an armed robber, fortunately. But that shows that how we deal with the problem is not something the police can do alone. Violence reduction in terms of interpersonal violence is not something the police can handle. They can respond to a murder by making sure they arrive quickly, secure the scene, gather evidence and make sure the perpetrator uh, is arrested and brought before the courts. But if you want to reduce violence, you need to start looking at early childhood development, parental assistance or caregiver assistance to children in, at high-risk areas. Um, you've got to deal with, uh, good, make sure you have good teachers, good social workers. That is a sustainable approach to reducing violence. The police only come in at the end. They're very reactive and can only be reactive. So we need to start rethinking. Um, if you want to reduce violence in South Africa, we have to start relying less on the police and start looking at other uh, options, which we are studying at the ISS at the moment. This is the total aggravated robbery rate, and you can see there quite big reductions from 2002 to 2003 when it peaked, so that was very good news, but that, that increase in last year was problematic. Um, 60,000 robberies in the streets, uh, 17,950 businesses were attacked in that, that financial year, sorry, homes were attacked in the financial year, 16,377 businesses were attacked by armed gangs. Um, Car hijacking, almost 10,000 instances of car hijacking. And then you see truck hijacking, uh, almost 1,000 instances, followed by cash in transit and bank robberies, very low proportions of the robbery. But that, that increase was something we were very concerned about because it's organized. It's a small number of people who are starting to get organized. If they get away with it, other young men who can get hold of weapons start thinking, well, why shouldn't we do it? And, it, and if you don't start arresting the perpetrators and reducing the rates thereby, uh, it starts being seen as something worth the risk, and you will see a growth in the number of people willing to take weapons and attack people in the streets and in their homes. It's a very policeable crime. It relies on policing to bring it down, because you're looking at a very small number, or relatively small number of people who commit a vast proportion of these crimes. Um, you probably, when we were looking at this in a few years ago, when I was working in government, in fact, we're probably looking at about three or four thousand people committing virtually 80% of the robberies in Car 10 in terms of uh, car hijackings, business robberies. Um, if you identify those people, in, in that stage they had an aggravated robbery strategy, they managed to get their arrest rates up and the conviction rates up by 30% in 2009, and we saw a 20% reduction in hijacking, a 12% reduction in house robberies, and a 13% reduction in business robberies in that year in 2010, because of that strategy, which saw a larger number of perpetrators being arrested, detained, and brought before the courts. Unfortunately, that strategy wasn't continued. So this is what these three crimes we call the trio robberies, uh, the red line shows the remarkable increase in business robberies in the last 10 years, um, by 300% increase. Uh, the green line shows the increase in house robberies, it's about 100% increase. Uh, and you see car hijacking was going up slowly, went down quite dramatically, and then in the last year we see an increase again. Okay, those crimes are largely syndicated. The only way you can fight them is if you are, have a strong, intelligent component to your police that are focused on identifying the syndicates that buy the stolen goods from these robberies. Cars are always sold onwards. A lot of the goods at households are, are sold onwards, jewelry, uh, electronic goods, iPads, that kind of thing. And business robberies as well. They sell a lot of the stuff. They, they steal two middlemen uh, who resell it on. So you need to identify the syndicates. It's, it's far more organized than just random opportunity robberies happening. There are a large proportion of that. Uh, but in each case, there's a direct contact between the perpetrator and the victim. So you will have eyewitness accounts, you will have some evidence at the scene, and of course, you can track the stolen goods. So good crime intelligence is fundamental to dealing with this problem. Um, assault rates, I showed that that's going down dramatically. Um, 
as I say, this, we, we don't see this as a very reliable indicator. Uh, there's not a much incentive for people to report assault to, to the police, but we do see quite a remarkable decrease. So if murder's going up and assault's going down, you have to ask the question, why is that happening? What is driving the murder rate? Because usually in most countries, there's a correlation between assault rates and murder rates. So if your, murder, if your assault rate goes up, you'll see it pushing murder up. Here we've got big decreases in assaults, but the murder's going up. So does that mean that the murder's been driven further by robbery? In which case, the statistics earlier that come from a police study need to be revisited. That study is already out of date and needs to be looked at again. You might find a great proportion of murders are now being committed by robberies. Because of robbery rates going up, it's likely that robberies are driving increases in murder. It could also be that vigilante action, uh, xenophobic attacks, and intergroup uh, violence might also be driving the murder rate. But that kind of detail is hidden in the crime stats. Don't break it down and present the nature of the murder um, within that category. Okay, so what can we expect going forward? Um, when we start looking at other uh, indicators, this is from the insurance industry. You can see already that uh, from last year, in, in the same, uh, they were also starting to record increases in house robberies and business robberies in terms of the payouts. They were increasing also payouts in theft, business burglary, and house burglary. So that pretty much um, uh, reflects uh, what was going on in the crime statistics. Um, when you start looking at SABIC's most recent report, which ends financially in December 2013, so these statistics will be contained as part of the new statistics that we released on Friday, check card fraud up by 30%. Robbery incidents related, related to banking. So attempts of robberies of banks or following people from banks and robbing them once they've drawn large amounts of money, up 89%. Total amount of cash lost in robberies has increased by 375%. So the groups that are targeting banks and people banking are doing it better, they're able to get bigger hauls. The cash in transit robberies are up by 18%, and the cash lost in transit robberies are up by 132%. So the syndicates that are tag targeting cash in transit uh, flows are able to obviously target the ones that have got the ball amounts of money. So you see big losses. So those statistics will be contained in the current statistics. So we are expecting to see some of those crimes going up. Crimes at Shopping Center, this is from the Consumer Goods Risk Initiative. Um, you can see there, armed robberies affecting shopping centers, uh, up by 52%. And uh, burglaries up and the cash loss slightly down there. So that stuff will also be in the, in the crime report. And then what we also follow is the Grand Thornton Business Survey. So you can see there that, like the crime stats showed, big reductions in the number of people who said in the past year they've suffered a personal... Uh, been affected by a threat to the personal safety, such as an attack or loss of uh, a victim of crime, particularly violent crime, but also housebreaking. And you can see from 2011, people start saying, greater proportions of people saying it went up and it continues to go up in the 2014 period. So we expect to see those statistics continue to go up in the police statistics. So will more police resources help? Well, that's an important question to ask because people often think, well, if crime is going up, we need to give more resources to the police. So this is what the police resourcing has been looking like. Uh, you can see in 2003-2004, the police received 22 billion rand uh, in terms of government allocation. And currently they're sitting at just under 69 billion rand. So there's been quite a dramatic increase. There's over 200% increase um, in terms of the amount of money they're getting. It's way above inflation. So certainly the government have recognized there's a crime problem and want to resource the police. So in terms of Funding allocations, it's rare to see a national police service in the world having such big increases over this prolonged period, particularly around the financial crisis happening in 2011. But the South African police service have just seen these big increases every year, way above inflation, which has allowed them to hire more police officers. So almost 70,000 more posts in the South African police service than there were a decade ago, when we had a total of 132,000 people working in the police, we've now got just uh, under 198,000. Um, that red light, so the red line, is the number of armed, police, armed and trained police officials. So we're looking at about 155,000 at the moment. The green line is support, people who do the logistics and admin support to the police, and there are 42,000 of them. So more resources, more cops, which means we are not under-resourced. If you look at the United Nations recommended one police official to 400 civilians, we're looking at South Africa now has one police official to about 265. If you live in Camps Bay, you get one police official to 38 civilians, as we see in the Kailich Commission report. Okay, and what have the police been doing? They have been working. There's no doubt that the increased resources have been used. So, red line, 
what the police report to Parliament is the number of people they stop and search every year, going up to 20 million people uh, at the moment, a year, being stopped and searched by the police. More cops on the roads stopping and searching more people. That blue line there is the vehicle stopped and searched. You can see it sort of dropped for some reason in 2009, 2010. I think having less roadblocks than for vehicle searching, but it suddenly jumps up to 7.7 .7 million, and it's remaining just below 8 million vehicles stopped and searched every year in the last few years. And then you can see the green line in the last three years, uh, big increases from 1.7 million to 5.8 million registered police patrols. So more money, more cops, more police activity. And what's interesting is how this police activity has been happening in the last three years at the same time when these robberies and other crimes are going up. It's not seemingly having an impact on that crime. Possibly because the police are certainly working harder, and you can see that those, those, those patrols and those stops and searches are yielding more arrests. So uh, a dramatic increase from one, uh, just over 1 million arrests 10 years ago to almost 1.7 million people arrested last year. So what happens to those people? Because the police should only arrest you if they have a reasonable suspicion that you've committed a crime and need to bring you before a court of law to face the charges. But the red line shows the total number of cases finalized by the National Prosecuting Authority every year. So whereas the police every year are arresting more and more people, the National Prosecuting Authority are finalizing fewer and fewer cases. And those total, that means convictions, acquittals, referrals on for diversion programs and so forth. In fact, as of last year, there were 84,000 fewer case finalizations by the National Prosecuting Authority than there were 10 years ago. So the system is not working as a system. The police are out there with more resources, planning their uh, operations, seeing dramatic increases in arrests, and the National Prosecuting Authority is not working the police. They're not allocating the same kinds of resources, not finalizing more cases. So what's going kind to of happening is, and this comes from international experience, mass arrests can start leading to breakdown in community police relationships. <coughs> So if you, who are you arresting? The police arrest who they see mostly. So if you look at most arrests, um, it's for crimes less serious than shoplifting. More than 50% of the arrests are definitely for crimes less serious than shoplifting. People get a nasty experience with the cops, they get released. Get arrested, get released. Get arrested, get released. So it starts telling people that the criminal justice system and the police isn't something you need to fear. The police then will sometimes brutalize people, try and make them fear them because when you're arrested by the police, they don't treat you with kid gloves. Uh, that often traumatizes people and starts breaking those community relationships down. So these massive arrests are certainly not bringing the crime rate down, but they could be reducing the legitimacy of the police in certain communities in South Africa. And of course, we see from the National Development Plan, they have diagnosed that one of the big problems facing South African police services is a serial crisis of management. Um, we see inadequate taken, and action taken against certain senior police officials despite evidence of wrongdoing. Richard Mdluli is a good example of that. Still in, he is still on suspension on full pay after evidence of widespread corruption and fraud emerged following Hawke's investigations by, against him in 2011. So it's very difficult to kind of engender trust and professionalism in organization when people are being protected, when there's mountains of evidence of wrongdoing against them. You see people being appointed to senior positions for reasons other than their merit or integrity. And they are therefore not able to fix the problems in the police because they do not have a reservoir of experience or knowledge of policing. They are there for other reasons. And when people are appointed into those senior positions with big pay packets for reasons other than hard work, experience, and dedication, it creates impression amongst the police officers who are doing the hard work on the ground that political or personal loyalty is more important than hard work, honesty, and qualifications to achieve senior positions. And that leads to a lower morale of police, and a lot of the kinds of problems you see at station level are based on that feeling that the organization isn't fair um, and that you can pretty much get away with things. This contributes to an organizational culture characterized by a code of silence, cops that are willing to speak out against bad behavior, a lack of willingness to reflect openly and honestly on key challenges, because you don't want to say something that might, even though it's true, even though you have facts, what you say might offend somebody, and therefore you see this lack of self-reflection. That, as I said, undermines police morale and willingness to prove. These issues are well documented, not only in South Africa and many policing agencies, but certainly in South Africa we've seen them, and even the Portfolio Committee on Police have repeatedly gone about Issues where people are being appointed into senior positions without following procedures. And if it's, don't fix the top of the police, you're not going to fix the bottom. Okay, so we need a new approach. That's our, our calling. In fact, the new approach has been around for some time. It's just not being implemented yet. That is the National Development Plan. Chapter 12 talks about building safer communities. It looks at the criminal justice review that was take, uh, take, undertaken in 2008. It looks at how do you get the system to work as a system. 
and it has seven key recommendations. It says those must be implemented as a matter of urgency. It talks about making the police more professional and demilitarizing them. Militarized police tend to have a certain way. A militarized outlook or militarized culture is where you define the enemy and you destroy the enemy. But in democracies, police have to work with communities. They need to be able to engage with people who are diverse. They need to be able to negotiate. They need to be able to talk to people and hear and discuss and solve problems. It's a different approach to the militarized approach in policing. There needs to be a focus on increasing rehabilitation of prisoners and reducing recidivism. We need to look at an integrated approach, and that, and that goes back to our saying earlier, the police alone cannot fight crime in South Africa. Uh, they need to work in partnerships with various communities, with various organizations, so that needs to change. There needs to be a forum, and when it comes to crime statistics, it's a good example. The police have incredible data. The crime analysis system is updated every 24 hours, and it shows you a map of the crime in that precinct. It tells you details about that crime. Any information about the perpetrators, the victims, the time of day, day of the week, what modus operandi was used, any information. So you could really do quite detailed uh, analysis of crime in each precinct to figure out if murder is going up in this particular area, why is it going up? And the, that analysis system will use it. The police use that as a system for hotspot patrolling and identifying hotspots and responding to crime mostly, although they weren't doing this in Kailicha, but in many cases they do. But that information could also be used by universities, medical research center, Department of Health, to start looking at how do we deal with, the, if most murders are between people who know each other, where are those communities, what can we start doing to intervene in the risk factors that lead to that kind of violence taking place in the first place? And that's the work of social workers. Um, since the 1960s, there's been studies showing that using social workers who spend as little as two hours a week with children, uh, caregivers of children between the age of three and seven, helping them with discipline, with hygiene, with homework, with cognitive development, um, within 10 years can result in those children subjected to that intervention by social workers be 50% less likely to be arrested for misdemeanors, abuse drugs and alcohol, or fall pregnant. So we have a shortage of between 50 and 60,000 social workers in South Africa at the moment, and we have hired almost 70,000 more police officers in the last decade. The new approach may see or may mean that we need to start understanding that the quality of our social workers and teachers is more likely to sustain a reduction in violence in the long run than trying to bolster up a police agency that simply cannot deal with the factors that lead to violence occurring in the first place. When it comes to policing, we also support the National Development Plan. Um, it really says that in the short term, the code of conduct should be included in disciplinary regulations and the performance appraisal system. Uh, and periodic checks should be done on that understanding and practice of the code. It's a very good code. So the police will be responsible, honest, um, they will act in a strained way, they'll work with communities. So every police meeting should always start with a reminder of what the Code of Conduct says. And certainly any testimony before the Marikana Commission should probably be start with a reminder of what the Police Code of Conduct says. Um, the Code of Professional Ethic Police Practice should be developed, further developed, and members should be trained and tested in it. And if you fail to pass or understand what that code means, what, what professional policing requires of you, then you should not be a police official. And oversight bodies such as Parliament um, and Secretariat should monitor adherence to the code. There should be a national policing board with multi-sectoral and multidisciplinary expertise that is established to set standards for recruitment, selection, appointment, and promotion of police officials. The national Planning Commission recognizes the police cannot fix themselves on their own. There needs to be other skill sets brought in and collectively work at how do we strengthen and improve the professionalism of the South African Police Service. So that's why it recommends that board. And of course, once you have the clear standards of what do you expect from people in the high positions, it's a very difficult job being a station commissioner or having a, a management burden in the South African Police Service, that all officers should undergo a competency assessment and rate it accordingly to make sure that if you are the head of intelligence that you understand intelligence and you have the expertise and ability to do that, to that job and hold that post. And where it's found that senior members of the South African Police Service are not able to fulfill the responsibilities of their posts, they should be moved to other parts of the organization where that better suits their skill sets and abilities, and those posts should be open and filled according to transparent and competitive procedures so that you develop a strong, competent, highly experienced team of managers at the top of the organization with integrity so that every policeman or woman who goes out in the streets every day know that the people who are running that organization are the best possible people that we have and will be able to help fix that organization and make their working conditions better. Um, and they talk about a two-tier system to make sure that, that when you are having officers, managers are trained to do that and that your street cops are trained to do street work. 
So right now you have a lot of good street cops. The only way they can get promotions and improve their salaries is by going into management positions. And sometimes a very good detective who's excellent at man uh, investigating cases is not as excellent sitting in a police station and trying to manage a team of detectives. It's a different skill set and requires a different approach. And then finally, over the last slide here, they say it should be objective testing uh, to make sure that people who are in these positions can do what they do. Of course, a national commissioner and deputy should be appointed by the president on a competitive basis. A selection panel should, be, should select and interview candidates against objective criteria and then provide the president with three options, similar to the way that the um, other appointments are sometimes made, probably protecting others. So that the best possible man or woman with the best experience in policing, and we have many. We have uh, South African police managers who have been in the organization for 20, 30, 40 years. Some of them have got masters, PhDs in policing. Some of them have got international degrees. I know a police manager, major general, with a degree from Harvard University in the United States. They're all sitting in cluster levels. Those kind of people need to be at the top of that organization. Um, and then the police force must be demilitarized, partly through training for professionalism, and as I talked about the negotiation and other kind of skills that's needed, and that there should be a review of the culture, organizational culture and subcultures that exist in that, that don't allow for proper accountability, transparency, and partnership to develop between the public and the police. So, in closing, that is pretty much where I'll end things, um, and I'll be willing to take questions um, and discussion about what I've just presented. So thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions, please raise your hand and just indicate who you are, your name, and where you're from, the designation. And I'll take three questions at a time. Overwhelmed with information? <laughs> yes, you yes, said, then I, I've got a hand there. Um, Karen Torres from the NCA. Um, there were talks that um, the ISS could, for the first time, um, actually sit with the police for their crime stats and help with, help with the analysis on it, obviously finding it on disclosure, etc., etc. Um, there was talks about that. That never happened in real life. Did you ever get any reason to why the police have a with well, no, we haven't got a specific reason, but I, I think what is important to acknowledge is that we, we did meet with the Minister of Police yesterday. He's meeting with various role players. We're certainly encouraged by what the Minister has said in Parliament and any speeches and to us yesterday. He seems to be willing to engage in a new approach. Um, so it was refreshing, cordial, and I think uh, with the Minister um, is able to change things. He will. And uh, I, we have no doubt at this moment that he really wants to do things differently. He wants to improve partnerships. So although we offered to do that, um, I can share it's a bit of difficult when government has a certain way of dealing with crime stats to suddenly change it. But he's certainly going to be looking into um, why the crime stats are released the way they are. Um, and he's very open to partnerships. So it was a, an opening meeting, which is very positive. And we certainly think that that spirit happens, that we start finding a way of talking to each other, listening to each other, sharing information. Because crime is affecting all of us. And we all want the same thing. We want to be safer in our homes and on our streets and in our workplaces. We want to be able to trust the police, respect the police. The police need that from us. We work with them so that we can deal with the problems of crime and violence. Um, and so we think that the minister's approach is a good one, and, and we'll certainly be supportive of that. So, but, yeah. Um, there's a hand here. Yes, uh, Shane Gavon, you mentioned that there, is, that there are reasons for this growing rift between the public and uh, the police. Big one, you knew. Um, you mentioned that there are reasons why there is a growing rift between, in, the, in the trust relationship between the public and police. Um, but what sort of recommendations or further recommendations can, can you provide for police to actually try and repair this rift? Well, look, the, the rift is partly because of this, uh, this uh, mass arrest approach. So to go out there, and there's a performance indicator. You must make so many arrests per shift and that kind of thing. And it's not necessarily a good uh, performance indicator. You really want to actually, the indicator you should be trying to measure is that, community trust and respect for the police. Um, so we agree with these recommendations, and I don't think there's any short-term solution, because the way the police have been trained in the training colleges now, because of this massive recruitment going on, Every year, there's, in the last 10 years, there's been about six to 7,000 new recruits coming through the training colleges. Um, and how militarization happens is for those trainers, in order to try and maintain discipline and show that everybody's doing the right thing, they use a very military style. So they wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, they have to polish their boots, make beds, they do a lot of marching. If they get disciplined, that's using physical PT. Um, they get told not to ask any questions, you just follow orders. There's group punishment. If your dorm is one person does something wrong, then you all get punished. Very militarized style. So you go through that training, and then you go out in the streets, and you train to take, not ask questions, take orders, 
um, and there's a certain objective to do it, you do it. Then you go on the streets and it's messy. You know what's going on when you get to a crime scene, you don't always know who the perpetrators are. So I think the, the training needs to be about ha and enabling the police to be confident when they go on the streets in difficult circumstances, to make decisions, to problem solve, to talk to different people. Um, when it comes to things like public violence, there's been a lot of focus. I see, uh, you know, the uh, National Commissioner a week or so ago in Parliament was talking about they needed 3.3 billion rand for new policing equipment. Of course, the police need to be properly trained and equipped to deal with um, public violence. But, for instance, negotiating skills might be something that you want to train them. Um, because if they can go to an angry group and say, listen, we're the police, we don't want to start firing rubber bullets at you. We want to talk about how we can get your message to the right people to hear it, or how to assist and protect your protest so that it doesn't undermine the rights of others or lead to damage of property. Um, that is something that wasn't mentioned. So we would say, rather than seeing this, uh, these uprisings or these protests as something that the police should just come down hard on, think of other ways of dealing with it. Um, work with local governments to find out where the hotspots are and make sure that there's a good communication between local government and the police and that kind of thing. And then, of course, just you know, increase the, um, the accountability so that when cops do bad things, uh, they, the disciplinary system is adequate, fair, and works quickly. Um, and when they do good things, they get recognized, rewarded, and promoted. So you don't want a situation where cops who do bad things escape any kind of sanction and cops who are doing good things also escape being recognized and rewarded. That, that, that's where we are at the moment. Um, and I think that's, if that can be changed, that would go a huge way towards building police confidence and the ability to engage with what is a very complex and difficult uh, job in our society. Okay, hand there. Yeah, and do we stand again full stop? And you're talking about the mass arrests on what is largely sort of petty crimes. Um, it seems to me that the two key things there are sort of small drugs, which presumably falls under the, the drug arrests. But a lot of it is also um, undocumented immigrants and so on. Where, does that, where do those arrests fall in the, in the crime stats? Well, they don't fall in the crime stats because the crime stats are a measure of the criminal cases opened by the police. So in a lot of those arrests, crime case, criminal cases are not open. Police can release you on a warning or they can just release you. They don't necessarily have to open a criminal case against you once they've arrested you, and often don't. So there's, there's not really a link between the crime stats and the arrests that are made. Um, if you've committed a crime and they want to charge, an, uh, charge you, they don't necessarily have to go out and arrest you. They can just invite you to come to the police station and charge you and make sure that you appear in court. So a lot of people do, that happens in a lot of cases as well. So they're quite independent statistics. Um, really, what happens is if you go to a police station and you report a crime that's happened to you and you sign an affidavit, the elements of the crime are clearly spelled out. That gets registered as a crime on the crime analysis system, and that becomes a crime statistic. Whether that leads to arrest or not is an independent outcome. Is it a good idea to be two political heads of the police, one in the functional piece, one in the ministry, instead of having the National Commissioner appointed from within the ranks of the well, I think ideally you have the Minister of Police is the political head who's responsible according to the Constitution. And then ideally the National Commissioner is somebody, well, they're, they're Director General. So they're an operational commander. Ideally that person should have been in the police for a long period of time. And as they work their way up, know what it's like to be a constable on the streets. Know what it's like to work in the detective environment. Understand how important intelligence is. Understand how the code of, culture, uh, code of silence can become part of a culture in an organization so that cops who do bad things are protected by others and that undermines public trust in everybody. Um, so years of being a police official and moving through the ranks and having an understanding of the management burden at station level, at uh, provincial level, um, and seeing where the gaps are so that when you're sitting in Pretoria, how do you make sure that you uh, respond appropriately to cops sitting around the country? It is ideal. Um, that's what we certainly would call for, that the person who is the National Commissioner of Police is an operational commander um, and they are appointed for that purpose. Because when you have two people who are Pointed for political purposes, you know, over one uh, one department, it does become a bit tricky. Um, the, 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 the president points the national commissioner and appoints the minister. So who has priority? And that can be a problem. So yeah, we agree that there should be one minister, one political appointment, and that the national commissioner should be a police officer. So it really isn't working. We've had three disasters. We've had Salibi, Pele, and. Yeah, well, that's something that we've been calling for a long time, that we think that, look, if you don't, and it's not absolutely necessary to have a police official as the commissioner, there are examples internationally where they brought in somebody who's got impeccable management skills, somebody who's taken a large public organization and turned it around, or a massive, or big business and turned it around. Um, 
you know, we have examples of that in South Africa. We've had Prabhim Gordon turn around SARS. We've had Mark Auken turn around StatsSA. Uh, so if someone like that, who has demonstrated the ability to come in, point the right people to the post, they don't necessarily have to know everything about the police. But if they make sure they put the right people in those in that management team, and that they're just responsible for making sure that there's a clear plan of action and bring the management skills, that could also work. So we're not necessarily saying it has to be a police uh, officer, but if it isn't a police officer, that person should really have uh, an impeccable track record of reforming and ch turning around large public organizations. Um, is it? Um, there's contact crimes going up last year, predictions of it going up this year again. Um, uh, also, looking at the trio crimes, um, crime intelligence, uh, police are stopping more visits to policing. Do they do it effectively? Um, if you look at those crimes anyway going up, that, that of the police crime, um, are they actually effective in doing their job? Um, well, I think if they were effective, those crimes wouldn't be going up. We know they can be effective. They have the people, they have the resources, um, and the experience. And as I pointed out earlier about the aggravated, the Harting aggravated robbery strategy, which was really implemented in 2009, was developed by the police in that province um, with assistance from the Department of Community Safety doing some international research on it, looking at the key principles and how they could be applied in South Africa. So that was using um, existing policing resources and achieved remarkable results in, in, in quite a short period of time. I mean, uh, so you could see that. So, and it was intelligence-driven. And I think we've seen that there's been a big problem in crime intelligence, um, starting with Mduli. A lot of very experienced intelligence uh, uh, officials and managers have left, been moved out in, in all that uh, conflict that happened around Mduli. Um, and the, the statistics are found in those police annual reports. We've seen big drops in the number of COVID uh, surveillance operations, products that they're presenting. So it had a huge impact. Um, and it goes back to the fundamental principle. You just have to make sure that the person who's in charge of crime intelligence is somebody of uh, integrity, beyond approach, and experience in crime intelligence, and only uses those powers for fighting organized syndicates and crime, and, and, and not for other purposes, such as spying on political leaders who are discussing removing another political leader as emerged in Mbugi's bail hearings. So uh, it's not impossible to fix because we've got really good crime intelligence officers, people with amazing experience background. It's a very well-resourced division in terms of technology. Um, so it really now needs a solid leadership, putting the right people there. And in the short term, I'd say get those people that were forced out back. If you can test them and vet them and make sure that they are honest and they're not involved in anything, bring them back because they've got the experience. Um, then you'll start seeing these kinds of crimes going down because it is policeable, but it requires the police to be able to focus and use intelligence to identify the networks that are buying the stolen goods. Because the people committing these crimes do so because they can easily sell stuff. And that's why they're doing it. And if you start hitting those syndicates, it becomes less easy to sell stuff. You start identifying the networks of the gangs that are operating. You arrest them. They go to jail for a long time. If you get convicted for aggravated robbery, it can be a 15-year prison sentence. That makes it very unattractive to other people who might be saying, well, I could do a normal job in the, uh, from 9 to 5, or I get a firearm and I work once a week. Uh, and at the moment, that deterrent isn't there. So crime intelligence is critical. Yes. Do you think the police take their own crime stats seriously? I mean, do you think they're actually paying enough attention to them and, and doing the sort of station level analysis that you talk about? Yeah. No, I think they do take them seriously. They might take them too seriously. I think one of the problems is that they, they tend to see all crime stats as a reflection of their performance. So we've been arguing that the crime stats are not a reflection of police performance. They may be in very certain specific cases, such as these robberies. Um, but it's really an indication of the crime challenge facing the police in the country. So ideally, the crime stats are not something that the police own. They should be probably released by Stats SA and that a cluster of ministers, who include social welfare and others, should say, well, this is what we're going to do to deal with the violence of young men, how we're going to deal with sexual assaults, how we're going to deal with brutality against children, and this is how the police are going to deal with the crimes that they are most able to focus on. So right now, because the police collect and uh, collate and release the data, um, they are possessive about it. They think people are going to see it as a reflection on them. So and they claim success. If the crime goes down, they'll say it's because of good policing. And if it goes up, they'll say we can't do it on our own. So I think uh, it's not something that should be seen as a, a property of the police. It's a national resource paid for by public money in the interest of the principles of transparency and accountable uh, required by our constitution, this data should be made available to anybody who needs it in any time. It's just numbers. But the numbers are instances of crime, and in the case of murders, they're victims. 
And you don't want to be telling the population six months after you gave, gave the numbers, by the way, you're less safe in your houses. When you look at effective crime reduction strategies, especially around robberies and murders, um, ranging from places as diverse as New York and Bogota and Colombia, um, it was the use of statistics regularly on a monthly basis that helped them identify emerging trends, where those trends were, bringing partnerships that are required, because murder can go up for different reasons. So if it's going up because of alcohol abuse and uh, internal fighting in a community, you might use it a different approach than if it's been driven by murder or murder is driven by robberies in another, society, another community. But you need that kind of information. The police have that information. So it should be seen as information that everybody can access, including other government departments. Even the other provincial, national, and local government departments can't get access to the crime states. Um, so Johannesburg City Safety, for instance, is supposed to improve city safety at a local level, but they get the crime stats like we get the crime stats. So you can't uh, have a measure that you implement and then next month see if your measure is working or not. So are you wasting resources? Is it having a desired effect? You don't want to have to wait a year later to see if it's having a desired effect. You need to be able to monitor these things monthly. Um, so first of all, be aware that the new trend is emerging like in a specific area, um, be able to effectively respond to that crime challenge, and then very quickly thereafter a, a measure and monitor whether it's having a desired effect. That's what the benefit of releasing crime stats monthly at local level means. The police could still release the national crime stats once a year. That's fine. That's good for historical purposes and just to, to, to announce what the, problem, what the challenges are. But certainly our argument is that it shouldn't preclude them from releasing whatever data they have at a local level as often as anybody wants to use it to improve safety requires. But don't, don't do that in CPFs, the monthly CPFs? Some CPFs do, but mostly it's crime trends. So they'll give a, they won't give a, they won't just sort of say these are all the crimes going up and down. They might say, okay, we're having a problem with car theft in this area, we're having a problem with house robberies. Um, it might be, they might give specific statistics or they might not. They might just give information, it's going up. The thing is this, is that if you put the crime stats um, on the client service center notice board every month, first of the day every month, or you put them on the police website, then other organizations or community groups or people in those communities don't necessarily have to bother the police. So, for instance, if uh, business owners in a specific precinct suddenly see that armed robberies are going up, they can, without necessarily involving the police, get together, pool the resources, uh, improve the security of their shops, hire more private security. There's a range of things they can do. They don't, so, by having information, you don't rely on the police to fight crime. If the people think they need the police, they can go to the police and get further assistance. But it's just information. So the more frequently it's released, the better. The more detailed it's released, the better. Um, and so that's something that we've been calling for for a long time. We think it's really low-hanging fruit. It's not going to make the situation worse. It'll just empower more people with more information about what's going on. No, sorry. Yes. If you look at a, there's a large number of senior police officers or police officers with a lot of experience in the police because of the police pension, pension fund issue now, and they're being replaced by young candidates. Um, in terms of losing a lot of that experience, how is it going to impact in the future? Um, well, you don't want to lose um, experienced police officials because they are also able to, sorry, off. they are able to mentor and impart that knowledge. So there should be a retention strategy to try and make sure that your more experienced officers, if they've proven themselves over the years, um, are looked after and there's an encouragement to stay. Or even if they were part-time, once they retired, to provide mentorship, to provide part of the training, part of assessments. So I think you, you really don't want a situation in which you experience people. Because it's, you know, policing is not something you can just learn overnight. Um, and training is not enough. You can learn it, you can read about it, but until you're actually on the streets and you're confronted with the reality of it and how that affects you as a person, um, and how you're able to deal with that and make decisions in that environment, it's not an easy thing. Uh, being a good intellig crime intelligence officer takes years. Being a good detective takes years. Um, you develop a sense of the craft of policing. So, yeah, whatever can be done to try and prevent the loss of experienced people should always be a, a priority in any policing agency. Please. Well, it's, it's difficult to say how much, but certainly it is taking resources away. And I've said this already two years ago, um, and again last year, that you know when you having to respond to five, on average, five daily violent public protests, 
Look, most of the violence is disruptive. It's not where people are necessarily being attacked. It's uh, community groups often um, frustrated with local service delivery or there's another issue that's frustrating them and they're not getting response from who they think they need responses from. So they're using violence and disruption to try and draw attention to the problem and hoping it puts pressure on politicians, councillors and others, depending on what the issue is, to resolve it. Um, so, but the, that might mean that they might be damaged property, roads get blocked, it's a very inconvenient. The police have to go there and maintain order. So when they're taking police officers every day to go and maintain order and try and dampen or stabilise situations like that, those cops are not going around doing visible police patrols and other kinds of policing activities. So it does um, direct resources away from other policing activities. Uh, and certainly there's a big attempt now the police to, to train people in public order policing. Like other kinds of policing, detectives, uh, intelligence, and so forth, it's also a particular skill. It's a particular training set. Um, the police who are involved in public order need to really be well-trained, know how to use less than lethal means, know how to negotiate, not take people insulting them seriously because they're professional police officials, um, not be part of escalating any violent conduct. So sometimes you'll find prov uh, provocateurs in, in groups that will actually throw stones at the police or swear at them or say nasty things, trying to get the police to, to be provoked. Sometimes they're really successful. So some of the studies show that police actually escalate some of these situations rather than de-escalate. That's why it needs training. And you need to have a very clear uh, a group of people who know what they're doing and are confident that they have the, the training and the resources acquired. Um, so there's definitely uh, going to be improvements there, greater numbers and more training happening there. Um, but I'd, at the end of the day, it's not something the police can really ever get on top of. Once again, like murder and these other crimes, uh, social contact, interpersonal contact crimes, they arrive after a range of factors have been going on for a long time, result in this, this crime. Um, if you want to deal with violent public protests, you need to ensure that the mechanisms that people have at a local level for having their grievances addressed are working, that they can phone their counsellor who will come and have a proper meeting with them and sit down and work out a plan of action and give feedback and communicate properly. Um, not where, because you see in some of these things building for a long time, where they send various letters, tribe delegations to go and meet with counsellors or, or local officials, um, either getting no response or having promises made that then aren't fulfilled. And that usually is the kind of situation that leads to mobilization, and then there's a trigger, then there'll be some kind of violent protest. Then you call the police. So we can increase the size of the public order policing um, cohort to 9,000 officers. We can spend 3.3 billion rand training and equipping them. Um, it's just going to be a, a lot more conflict between the police and communities than if maybe a large proportion of that money was actually spent on fixing some of the things at local government level to ensure that communities don't become violent. But I uh, see we've now kind of reached the end here, so unless there's any burning questions, you can feel free to talk to me after this. I want to thank you again for all coming. Um, we are looking forward to the release of the crime stats on Friday because we obviously are interested to see how much uh, which category has gone up and down by. We hope there is some good news. We don't know yet. We don't know any more than anybody else um, at this point. But I want to again also thank our sponsors, the Hans Hansala Foundation, Ford Foundation, and the Government of Finland, and to all of you for coming. And we look forward to having you at future events. So thank you very much. Thank you.